Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice Podcast. My name is Richard Brown, and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well, we're in strange times, I know that, and um, I've got to be honest, uh, I passed the deadline recording day uh, or, or cut off for this week's podcast, which was a Monday evening. Uh, Shiggy, who does the, uh, the editing of the podcast, would have been waiting and ready to prepare it on Tuesday, ready to, for you to hear it on Wednesday. But I was lacking inspiration, in all honesty, um, and I just didn't get it done. So um, I'm sat here on uh, Tuesday morning and hoping that when I do get this recording over to Shiggy that she can still do it. Um, so hopefully it'll go live Wednesday, uh, but if it's late, you know exactly why. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's that probably a little bit of a preamble there that was unnecessary. But um, one of the reasons effectively that I was struggling with inspiration is that I didn't want to uh, go into more sort of coronavirus conversation at this point in time. Um, <clears throat> obviously, I covered it off a couple of weeks, or three weeks in a row in a way. Uh, one was how, how I'm responding and two were, you know, obviously about the virus, etc. And I just didn't want to do it again, in all honesty. But I was just trying to think, well, what do I want to talk about? And I had a few different ideas. Um, I hope one of them, just so you're aware, is instead of, uh, obviously, you know, we've got this virus that, you know, people can pass on the infection to maybe two or three people on average. I was actually thinking about... Um, passing something else on you know, to two or three people on average, like a random act of kindness or some sort of giving. Um, I'm probably going to come back to that idea because it really sits with me uh, that perhaps, and particularly in these uh, you know, tough moments, people are you know, isolated, literally, uh, as well as you know, metaphorically. Uh, people are distant and, and cannot you know, socially interact. It might be good, actually, to undertake some random acts of kindness. That could be to family members. It could be to people in our community. It could be people more broadly. Um, so uh, I'm doing a few things myself. For example, in the property community, I've got a coffee time. I call a coffee time uh, session, half an hour, every, every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's for people in my community. And literally, it's just we switch on the Zoom and we just have a chat. It's just a bit of social. That's what the intention is. Sometimes we drift into business, but it's just whatever people want to talk about. We keep it light. But, you know, it's which is sort of building a little bit of community, a bit of contact with the outside world, if you like, in that sense. I have what's called a town hall on a Friday. That's more as a longer conversation. It's more business focused. So just trying to give something back into the community. And of course, I've got the uh, TPV live on Wednesday lunchtimes. Um, it's uh, one o'clock on Wednesdays, UK time. If you want to join in with that, just reach out to me, podcast at propertyvoice.net, and I'll share the, the link with you uh, to, to join in. And that's just for you guys, effectively. You know, if you want to join in, you want to have a conversation, you just want to sit and look at somebody else instead of whoever you're perhaps surrounded by, if you're fortunate to be surrounded by. But I will come back to this because I've got a few friends who are um, they're obviously locked down at home, but they're on their own, literally. And some of them, particularly are struggling with the idea of being isolated, particularly if they're extroverted types of uh, personality. 
So I think now and again to reach out to those sort of people. So I have kind of drifted into that topic at the, the beginning of this uh, conversation. And you're going to wonder, what has this got to do with uh, tax pointers, which is going to be the title? Um, so bear with me in a couple of seconds, I will get to some tax pointers. But I just thought I'd just start with some reflection and also just the idea of reaching out and connecting to others at this point in time, which I shall probably return to because it's something very much on my heart. Okay, so that preamble is out of the way, um, three or four minutes in, um, but let's, let's talk about tax. Now, I've, I usually shy away from talking about tax um, for a couple of reasons. <clears throat> One of which is I'm not a tax accountant, I'm not a tax advisor, I'm not a tax specialist. So I'm going to caveat everything I say in this episode as I'm, I'm calling them pointers deliberately. It's not tax advice, um, they're tax pointers. These are things that I'm aware of. Um, that you know, I can share with you on the course of this podcast today, and 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 then it's for you to make your own inquiries. Okay, so I think I strongly recommend that anything I talk about today that you validate with your own independent tax advisor or accountant. Uh, so I'm going to give some pointers, things I've discovered, things that I'm aware of, things that I sometimes you know looking to try and take advantage of myself, um, and just signpost you to them as ideas and concepts. I'm not giving advice, uh, so please seek your own independent advice. Yeah, that's a disclaimer. Uh, hopefully that's clear. But let's just then talk about tax for a while, shall we? Right, so <clears throat> I've got about 10, I think, uh, tax pointers that I, I just wanted to share with you. I'm just flicking through my notes as I, um, as I sort of, have I got 10 or not? <laughs> I think I do have 10. Um, so the first one really is, um, it's all about um, council tax, actually. And um, if a property is uninhabitable, typically a definition of uninhabitable, apart from the obvious, like it's got no roof or walls or you know, floors, that's clearly not habitable. But uh, more subtly, if it doesn't have functioning kitchen and bathroom, that can sometimes be the, the test of uninhabitable. Uh, now, I'm not specifically giving a definition of uninhabitable. That's something that needs to be explored. Uh, in conjunction with your advisors, but if a property is uninhabitable, or you believe it is, you can apply to the VOA or the value, uh, Valuations Office, effectively, to have it deregistered for council tax purposes, which means it gets taken off the council tax register, which also means you don't pay council tax on the property for, for the period that it is deregistered. Now, this can be very useful. So, uh, for example, I, I bought a property. It's, uh, it's a former care home. I couldn't really understand why it's council tax, not business rates. That's one thing, but there we go. Um, but um, I, it's been long-term empty before I owned the property. And in the local authority area where this is located, which is Doncaster, um, long-term empty properties, I mean, in fact, most, most local authorities have this kind of principle now, but they charge a premium for long-term empty and then a, a super premium for super long-term empty. So I think usually that's two years uh, and then five years a threshold. So it's 100% premium for two years empty and then 200% uh, premium. So that's on top of the regular council tax. So it's three times council tax if it's being um, empty or unoccupied for five years or more, which is the case with this particular property. Even though I haven't owned it for that period of time, I'm picking up the tab because previous owners left it empty for a period of time. I'm, you know, working on the property, uh, but I've been clobbered for council tax. So I was looking at, well, should I be paying this? You know, is there a way around it? We had the good old days in the past where we got a period of grace 
where there's property owners and landlords where we could actually undertake works of property and then get a relief from council tax. Well, now it's the opposite. Local authorities are actually a little bit more aggressive in this area and they're using the uh, premiums for council tax, which is all being provided to them through deregulation to collect additional revenue locally from people who've got uninhabitable property or empty properties rather, sorry, empty properties. In a way, it makes sense because it's an encouragement to bring disused properties or empty properties back into use, which is obviously good for housing in the local area. So I get, I get it, I get the principle. But what I think, you know, sometimes seems a bit odd is where you've got a new owner who's got intentions to do things with that property and then they get penalised for the previous owner's actions, essentially. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's right. That's my personal opinion. But there's no point in me bleating about it because I'm probably not going to get the law changed. So I'm looking at workarounds. So there we go. You can apply to the Valuation Office Agency. The key point there is the Valuation Office is independent of the local authority council tax department. If you ring the council tax department, they will just tell you you've got to pay it, pretty much. Um, they may refer you to the Valuation Office, or they may not. So just go straight to the Valuation Office, get it, um, you know, get, put, put a case forward. Usually they will need to go inspect the property. Let's see if that's going to happen at this point in time. They may accept alternative forms of evidence that it's uninhabitable, such as photographs or video uh, instead. So um, that, that's just the tip and a point in there. So first one, avoid council tax if a property is uninhabited, uh, uninhabitable by getting it deregistered through the valuation office. The second one is if you're... Um, if, for example, you're buying a property that sits within a company, let's say it's just a single property, or indeed there's a collection of properties within a company, you want to buy all of them, then instead of buying the properties themselves individually, then you can actually buy the, the shares of the company instead, buy the company instead. And uh, by doing this, you achieve a stamp duty saving. So, of course, with stamp duty on residential property in particular, there's this 3% premium, there's this ratcheting of stamp duty in the first place, and it can get, you know, very expensive. But if you buy shares, um, there is still sort of former stamp duty that needs to be paid on a, on a share transfer, that's, that's half a percent. And there isn't this sort of threshold or, or tiered system. So, in other words, if you bought a property that say, uh, I, I can't remember my, tax count, my, my uh, stamp duty bandings off the top of my head, but uh, even if it's say 125 or 126,000, you'd obviously be paying the 1% stamp duty and the 3% premium, which is 4%. Whereas you could, if you bought the company instead, you just pay half percent stamp duty. So as a buyer, this can be quite a significant tax saving. One word of caution is that um, if you're buying a company rather than a property, there's, there's more due diligence that you need to undertake. And usually that's uh, checking that there's no sort of hidden liabilities that could creep up and bite you later. So in other words, you need your lawyer to do a bit more work. You also need to do a bit more work around the company to make sure you don't sort of, you know, buy into something that you really weren't expecting. Uh, and uh, examples might be charges on property, for example, that you, you can't release. So just, just be aware of that. Uh, but yeah, there may be a bit more to pay in legal fees. That's what I'm getting at. So, um, but it shouldn't be anything near the stamp duty that you've saved. And so it should be a win. So that's the stamp duty saving. I'm going to stick with stamp duty for a while. There's just a couple of extra ones. So the next one is if you happen to be buying six residential properties all at once, uh, so you're buying a small portfolio effectively, uh, which you know isn't, isn't inconceivable, uh, there might be people, there might be landlords exit, exiting right now, or you might want to buy into a large sort of uh, portfolio yourself in a single transaction. 
that's the point actually. It, six individual properties would then be reclassified as a, as a single commercial transaction. And what you do is you convert residential stamp duty into commercial stamp duty and usually resident, uh, sorry, commercial stamp duty is lower than residential stamp duty. So you'd have a stamp duty saving if that were the case. Hopefully you've got good advice and if you were buying a portfolio, you'd be seeking that advice and perhaps you'd know that, but I just thought I'd signpost you to that. Because if you're thinking, oh, I want to um, acquire, say, six properties this year, um, you know, what every other month or something, <clears throat> if it was possible to do it in a single transaction, maybe from a single buyer, uh, sorry, seller, then <clears throat> you can get a stamp duty saving, as I mentioned. So sticking with stamp duty for a, a moment, um, of course, that's if you buy six properties and you might be thinking, well, I'm not really going to be buying six properties, Richard. So uh, can you tell me one that's more suitable for me? Well, maybe. So the next one is if you buy multiple properties, but not as many as six in, in a single transaction, maybe you buy two. So between two and six or between two and five, really, because the six converts into the uh, commercial. Uh, if you're buying a couple of properties at once, let's just take that example, then you, can, you have the choice, you have the option of what they call averaging. So you can average the selling price. So for argument's sake, if you were buying one property, I'm just going to make a ridiculous example, uh, of um, uh, 500,000 and another property, maybe not 500,000, one property of 350,000 and one property of 50,000, for argument's sake, then you've got a total of two, uh, sorry, 400,000 there. Uh, you pay a lot of stamp duty on the one at 350,000. You wouldn't pay that much on the one at 50,000, but you could average out the two at 400,000 and uh, potentially get a saving on the large one if you've tripped over a threshold in some way. So the 250,000 is the stamp duty threshold. So um, you'd need to do the sums. You need to see if it works for you, but you can have what's called averaging of the, of the, uh, stamp, of the stamp duty in that situation. So that might be more beneficial to you if you're buying a couple of properties, three properties at once, for example. Next one is if um, if you happen to be buying a commercial property, um, so it's a shop or it's an office or you know something like that essentially, that would be classed as a commercial property under its current usage. Have a look into whether capital allowances have ever been claimed on the fixtures and fittings in the past. Now, there are some rules about claiming capital allowances. You can only do it once in, in effect. That's why I said make some inquiries as to whether they've been claimed in the past. If the current owner has classified and claimed for fixtures and fittings as capital allowances, then this benefit's not going to extend to you. But if it hasn't, in other words, they haven't really said, well, you know, all the fixtures and fittings in this commercial building, uh, we're going to class as fixtures and fittings and we're going to put in a claim for capital allowances, well, you can then do that. Uh, and if you make a claim for capital allowances, you basically get a tax offset uh, by the uh, capital allowances um, are permitted on fixtures and fittings. So in a commercial building, that can actually add up to quite a lot. You know, just think about things like air conditioning units, for example, um, but even boilers, things like that would be classed as a fixture or a fitting. You know, if you can imagine anything that, you know, that can be removed from the property without, you know, impairing the property itself, i.e. the four walls, the floor and the roof, um, and any flooring, of course, uh, would be staying intact. But anything that can be removed could be reclassified as a capital allowance, uh, sorry, as a fixture and fittings, in which case you could make a claim for capital allowances and reduce your um, tax bill accordingly. So that's if you're buying a commercial property. And of course, in these days of commercial to residential conversion, a lot of people are doing that 
uh, even on a small scale, if it's a shop they want to convert, then there could be capital allowances and fixtures. Sorry, there could be fixtures and fittings which you can make a claim for capital allowances on. So that's the buying a commercial property. Uh, and now, sticking with the idea of fixtures and fittings, but not restricting it to commercial, if you're buying a residential property, which includes some fixtures and fittings, so let me give an example, an HMO would be a good example here. So it's, it's classed as residential uh, property, but fixtures and fittings and an HMO, if you're buying an existing HMO, it could include carpets, curtains, furniture, and uh, white goods, you know, for example. So um, if you're buying a, an, an existing property which has got fixtures and fittings, you're able to split out the building from the so-called fixtures, well, from the fixtures and fittings, which under law is called chattels. It's one of these old words, um, which refers to sort of a different type of property. So <clears throat> the chattels or the fixtures and fittings could be separated out. And as a result of this, um, when you're purchasing the property, let's say you're buying a property for say, let's say it's an HMO, let's say you're buying it for 150,000. Uh, let's say you could really reasonably value, now this is, this is important, you can't overstate the value of the chattels, otherwise you're probably going to come a cropper. So let's say the fixtures and fittings in this HMO are valued at, let's say, £15,000. So that's, that's the uh, furniture in the rooms, it's the white goods and the furniture and the common spaces, it could be the carpets and it could be the blinds or curtains, for example, in the property. Uh, you could probably add to that list, but there's some core items that you would inevitably inherit if you were buying an HMO. And what you could say, so it's 150,000. Uh, actually, I'm going to change this. Let's say it was uh, you're going to purchase the property for um, it was 130,000, and the chattels were 15,000. Sorry to change the numbers on you, but you'll you'll get it in a second. Um, if it was 130,000 and 15,000, of which you could reclassify as chattels then what you'd end up doing is you'd actually be paying, do my maths, Richard, 115,000 for the actual property of the building, and then separately you'd be paying 15,000 for those chattels or those fixtures and fittings. So you'd still be paying the 130,000 in total, but you should separate out property from chattels. Um, you need to, and by doing this, you basically uh, save on stamp duty or you could save on stamp duty. Well, you'd save on the stamp duty on the chattels, and if you actually come below a threshold, so in this case, that's why I changed the value. So you know, 130 would have put you into a higher tax, um, stamp duty threshold than 115,000 would be. So you actually save on the rate of stamp duty on the property elements as well. Now, it wouldn't surprise you to know that HMRC are pretty switched on to this particular um, opportunity, let's say. So they will be looking quite closely if you actually do submit a claim uh, form which breaks down property from chattels and they may well investigate because they just want to double check that you're not actually doing something just to engineer and manipulate the system to reduce tax. And that's sort of understandable if you think about it. So just do it legitimately. So if you are genuinely buying a property and it genuinely has uh, these chattels, so-called uh, fixtures and fittings that come included with the property, and you can put a fair value on those, you know, which might not be cost of replacement, but the cost of what they are worth today, for example, that's important. And you can itemize that in a schedule. You can get the seller to uh, list them in their documentation. Then you've got nothing to worry about. Um, but don't try and, you know, engineer. Never, never try and abuse tax <laughs> rules because it'll only backfire. 
and HMRC are pretty switched on. They've got some uh, checking processes which allow them to look into these sort of things. So anyway, there we go, chattels. If you didn't know about chattels before, you do now. So um, here's another one. If you're buying a commercial building, so going back to commercial right now, that's VAT registered, then um, you've got a couple of options. You can either try and get the seller to deregister it prior to sale. Now, that, that might be possible, for example, if it's vacant and they're not collecting rents and that sort of thing. Um, so they could perhaps deregister it prior to sale. Or if that's not possible for any reason, you put it into an SPV, a special purpose company or special purpose vehicle, and um, register it for VAT yourself. Now, the, this, this works particularly if your plans are to convert the building into residential, for example. So if you register for VAT and, and then you subsequently convert the property uh, and you're going to retain that property, any rent that becomes due um, is not subject to VAT if it's residential. Now, it would be if it's commercial. So um, just keep that in mind. This may or may not work for you depending on your strategy. Similarly, if your plan was to um, preserve it as um, commercial and resell it, then VAT could be a cost which may not be reclaimable on behalf of the buyer uh, that's coming in. So in other words, it's a premium on the, on the purchase price, unless the buyer happens to be registered for VAT, in which, they, which case they could uh, claim the VAT uh, as an input tax and reduce the, the actual bill, if you like. So this can get a bit complex, <laughs> uh, but here's the spin. If you buy a commercial property, which is registered for VAT, you yourself become registered. First of all, you can reclaim the VAT on the purchase. Second of all, as I mentioned, if you turn it into residential, you won't have to charge VAT on the rents because it doesn't apply in residential property. And third of all, you can actually reclaim all of the VAT on the uh, works that you undertake to convert the property as well. Uh, so obviously you'll have tradespeople, contractors coming in to convert the property Often they'll be VAT registered, um, so that, that is a cost that you could then reclaim. So that's an interesting one. Um, as I mentioned, probably worth getting professional advice on that one because you can you can actually you know move you can actually come and stuck basically. So, um, but just wanted to signpost you um, to that particular angle. But number eight, sticking with uh, VAT uh, for a moment. Keep in mind that actually there are reduced rates of VAT for certain types of uh, property development activity, if I can call it that. So if you're doing a refurbishment and you're not changing the use of a property, then you know, you're just going to pay the VAT to the incoming trades and that's that. Okay. So if they charge VAT, 20% VAT, standard rate, and you're doing a refurbishment, then it's just a cost to you, to us. Um, but we can't reclaim unless we put, you know, we are VAT registered and we can reclaim it that way. But assuming that we're, you know, <clears throat> residential, um, we're landlords uh, owning the property, we're not VAT registered, then the, we cannot reclaim that 20% uh, VAT, which becomes a, an on cost for us. But it, um, if we're converting the property, so for example, we're converting it from, uh, for argument's sake, commercial to residential, or convert, we're changing its use, say, from a, a um, the C3 to C4 HMO or a sui generis HMO, we're converting, we're changing the use of the property. In that situation, we can uh, ask the contractors to reduce the VAT that they apply from 20% down to 5%. So that's more palatable perhaps if we're paying 5% on the works costs on um, the uh, conversion. Now, a bit of a warning, um, the reduced VAT doesn't extend to professional fees. So it's only on the actual construction-related costs. It's not on professional fees. So 
you can't get your solicitor, your accountant, your your QS or anybody else, project manager, uh, reducing their VAT, but you can on any actual you know, works that are undertaken with property. So that's uh, that's that. And then um, if you if you've got elements of new build, so let's say you're buying a plot of land, or indeed you're um, adding new elements to an existing plot, this can get quite complex. But uh, if it's new build, essentially it's zero rated for VAT purposes. What that means is if you've got contractors coming in and building a property, then they shouldn't be charging VAT on their work. So that's a good saving if uh, if you're not VAT registered. So um, you know. Keep in mind that um, if, um, yeah, I think I'll just leave it at that actually. I'm just going to point you to that, the, the reduced VAT. So a lot of people overlook that. They end up paying 20% VAT when they don't need to. So just that's, that's one little pointer for you there. Um, <clears throat> then uh, I guess the next one is uh, furnished holiday lets. Um, now, you're probably aware uh, Section 24, uh, if, you're, if you're a private landlord, um, there's restrictions on the amount of financing costs, including mortgage interest and other finance-related fees. That's being phased out, if you haven't noticed already. Um, we, we're just into the 75%, you know, it's being phased in, generally speaking, over a four-year period. We're three years into the four-year period now. Um, so um, the uh, Section 24 says we can't reclaim all of the interest and other finance costs on a residential property no longer if it's, a, if it's owned in our own name. Now, one, one way to get around that is to own the property in a company. Um, so that's, that's one way of saving that particular tax hike, which can be significant. Uh, it may or may not be suitable for everybody, though, owning a company. So if you've got a small portfolio and you don't intend to grow that much and you're a basic rate taxpayer, then you might not need to put it in a company uh, and it won't affect you too much. But I wanted to talk about furnished holiday lets because um, if you're running a furnished holiday letting business or service accommodation business, um, which actually might not, you know, might not be great at this point in time when we, you know, people are not traveling and people are able to book, make those bookings. But if you take a long-term view, it should be okay. Then actually the rules around um, Section 24 interest relief, <coughs> excuse me, don't extend to furnished holiday lets. In other words, you can still claim all the interest and all the finance-related costs as a legitimate business deduction in the, for the furnished holiday lets within your business or your portfolio. So, um, <coughs> One bit of good news, I guess, is if you if you have a furnished holiday let or a serviced accommodation business, which is subject to business rates uh, on or before the 11th of March this year, then actually you'll get a grant. Um, the government's making a grant available. So I've got I've got a, a couple of units which are affected. They're, they're claiming business rates, which I've got small business rates relief. So I actually wasn't actually paying, uh, certainly one of them. And um, the government's going to just give me a £10,000 grant uh, because obviously recognising that the bookings have fallen off a cliff, literally. But that'll, that'll tide me over for a period of time. So that's that's some relief. But I just wanted to talk about the interest deduction. Section 24 doesn't extend to furnished holiday lets. Okay. And um, I guess, you know, just to um, cap the, uh, the, the list of 10, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, just refreshing my notes, to be honest with you, <laughs> is that our home can be a, a great tax strategy. Um, you know, it's one of the best tax strategies we can actually have. Um, unfortunately, we can only have one home at one point in time. So this is, you know, what we call the principal primary residence or PPR relief. So with, uh, if, we're, if it's our home, we don't get uh, the 3% stamp duty premium, which we would do for an investment property. 
We, um, we don't pay uh, capital gains tax on any gain, which we would do on an investment property. So if we came to sell it and made a profit, uh, if that's a buy to let property and investment property, we pay capital gains tax. If we, we, if it's trading, we pay, uh, we pay income tax or corporation tax. We'd be basically paying tax on the gain. But if it's our home, uh, PP, we get PPR really if we don't pay capital gains on the gain there. So no capital gains tax. Um, if we were to rent out rooms or a room, in our property, we can earn up to £7,500 per year tax-free under the Rent-A-Room scheme. So if you don't mind somebody else sharing the space with you, you can earn up to 7500 tax-free. And then uh, if we later convert it to a buy-to-let, I'm just going to check some of these. Um, we can, if we later convert it to a buy-to-let, we can still claim the last nine months of ownership. It was 18 but the, I'm saying nine at the moment because the law was about to be changed. I just need to check if it has changed, if it's still going to change. But I do believe that the, light, the last sort of uh, 18 months that was available as a PPR relief has been reduced to nine. That's just that it's still a little bit of extra capital growth that we can save, even if we subsequently convert it to a buy-to-let. Now, we used to have something called lettings relief as well. So that's where if you have your own home and you subsequently convert it to a buy-to-let, the government would give you an allowance for that. Uh, which is, you know, great. Uh, it was £40,000. It, it's a bit complicated how it works because it isn't just a 40, straight £40,000. Uh, there's, there's actually three possibilities, but lettings relief could apply, which could reduce the uh, taxable gain by £40,000, which could actually save you quite a lot of money on, uh, on uh, capital gains tax when you come to sell that property later on. So there's just a few pointers there in terms of tax savings on your own home. So as I mentioned, you can only really own one home at a time. But I know a number of people who've basically moved up the housing ladder using their own home as a vehicle to do that. You know, buying a property, adding value to the property, subsequently selling that property or indeed, you know, renting it out and actually profiting in one way or another, whether it's through income or capital gains through their own home. Now, you can't do it every six months because the revenue is going to basically say, that's a business activity. You are not really living in this place. You're just, you know, it's a ruse. So I think, you know, the, the gap between buying and selling needs to be a reasonable period of time, which you can legit, legitimately say, well, it is my home. I just added some value to it. And then I've sold that home and I bought a new home. And I'm going to do the same with that one. And there's nothing wrong with that. People do DIY value adding improvements to their home all the time. So there's nothing wrong with that. So there you go. Um, I've rattled through that list. Um, there's 10 um, potential tax savings there. I'm signposting you to them. I'm making you aware of them, some of which you might have known already. Maybe one or two you didn't know already. Hopefully one or two apply to you. Um, but as I say, um, please you know, get independent advice. Uh, I'm not advising you here on taxation, which is one of the reasons why I tend to avoid it on the podcast. But I thought I'd actually share this with you today as... Uh, it's just a slightly different uh, topic to cover on the podcast and get you thinking in a slightly different way. Um, we're all looking to save money at this point in time, probably. So uh, saving tax is one way in which we can save money and uh, or increase our profitability uh, and our returns on our investment. So, um, yeah, we can, you know, every penny saved in tax is a penny earned, so to speak. So hopefully that's been useful. I, um, I'll leave you with that thought for now. The show notes are going to be available. So if you want to just refer to anything I've said, uh, they're going to be available at the website, propertyvoice.net. 
Um, if you want to join in with the TPV Lunchtime Lives on Thursday at 1 p.m., just connect with me, podcast at propertyvoice.net, or reach out to me on social media. A number of people have done that, and I'll share the links with you. You can join in with that uh, that session. So you can just join in and, and be a you know and socialize, or you can just join in and maybe uh, use it as an opportunity to ask some questions. Um, I know yesterday, Derek uh, saw my WhatsApp number listed on the Property Voice um, Facebook page and called me, and uh, that's actually what ultimately stimulated the uh, this this particular podcast episode because he asked me about whether he should buy um, a property that's in a company or buy the company itself, and I said I told him about the, the stamp duty saving, and that's what really sort of stuck in my mind, and I thought I'd share that um, that tip amongst nine others with you today. So there we go. Hopefully it's been useful. Um, there's the signposts, uh, pointers towards tax. Take your own advice. But I guess uh, for now, that's all I really wanted to share. Um, the show notes are over, the, uh, over the website, as I mentioned. But I guess all that remains to be said is thanks once again for listening again, again this week on the Popsy Voice podcast. And until the next time, it's Chacha. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.